We're going to turn now to the New Testament, to Romans chapter 8. And we're going to start reading at verse 18 down to the end of the chapter. Romans 8, 18 to the end of the chapter. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning, as in the pains of childbirth, right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what he already has? But if we hope for what we do not have, do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes with us, for us, with groans that words cannot express. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints, in accordance with God's will. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. What then should we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, uh, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble, or hardship, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Well, we're going to sing another song, uh, Lord from Sorrow's Deep I Call, and after this Ben will come to preach to us.
from sorrow's deep I call, when my hope is shaken, torn and ruined from the fall, in my desperation, for so long I've pled and prayed, God come to my rescue, even so the thorn remains, still my heart will praise you. Storms within my troubled soul, questions without answers, on my faith these billows roll. God be now my shelter, why are you cast down my soul? Open him who saves you, when the fires have all grown cold, cause this heart to praise you. Oh my soul, put your hope in God. My help, my rock, I will praise Him. Sing, oh sing, through the raging storm. You're still my God, my salvation. Should my life be torn from me, every worldly pleasure, when all I possess is grief, God be then my treasure. Be my vision in the night, be my hope and refuge. Till my faith is turned to sight, Lord, my heart will praise you. So put your hope in God, my help, my rock, I will praise Him. Sing, oh sing, through the raging storm, you're still my God, my salvation. And oh my soul, Put your hope in God, my help, my rock, I will praise Him. Sing, oh sing, through the raging storm, you're still my God, my salvation. Evening, everyone. It's thank you, Mike. <laughs> thanks to Paul for leading the first part of our service, and thanks to David for reading and praying for us. And thank you to the elders for the opportunity to open God's Word this evening. It's more nerve-wracking preaching in your own church than it is whenever you go elsewhere. But we trust that the Lord will bless us as we come around His Word this evening. A time of difficulty or a time of struggle often focuses the mind on where our confidence is, doesn't it? Whenever 
things go wrong in life, that's whenever we start to realize where our confidence truly lies. On the 10th of September 2001, George W. Bush, the President of the United States, enjoyed an approval and confidence rating among his own people of 51%. On the 14th of September 2001, George W. Bush, whenever people were asked the same question, enjoyed a confidence and approval rating of 86%. Now, in those four days, what had changed? And if you're my age or above, you will know the answer. It was, of course, that dark day, September the 11th, 2001, whenever those terrorist attacks were perpetrated on the people of America. The people of America's confidence in a time of crisis was in their president. Regardless of your view of George W. Bush's track record in office, the people of America, in those four days, their view of him completely changed. They had confidence in this one man to lead them through a time of great difficulty for that nation, a time of great crisis for that nation. They put their hope and their confidence in a man. That was an error. Because, of course, then, if you know the, the rest of American political history, you will know that George W. Bush's approval ratings quickly dropped again. By the end of 2003, they were back into the low 50s. And then by the time he was kicked out of office in 2008, I think it was, he was back down into the 30s. So George W. Bush's track record was really defined by the American people's confidence in him around September 2001. But each of us need to know where our confidence is, because all of us, we may not face such great difficulty as the American people faced in September 2001, but all of us at some stage in life will face some sort of difficulty. No one escapes the reality of life in a fallen world. And so as we come around God's word this evening, I want us to consider together, how do we gain confidence in a time of struggle? As we look at Psalm 77 particularly, we're going to get a biblical blueprint for finding confidence when life is tough. And if you're in the room this evening and you're a believer, I trust that this will encourage you in the week to come. That if there is difficulty in the week ahead for you, that you will know that there is confidence for you in the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you're in the room tonight and you're not a believer, if you're someone who's not trusted in the Lord Jesus, it's great to have you with us. You're very welcome among us. But I want you to consider this evening, where is your confidence? Because as I set out in this sermon, I don't know how I would answer that question on your behalf. Where can your confidence be whenever life is difficult? Now, to answer that question, we're going to come back to Psalm 77, which David read to us. If um, you're following along, it will be helpful to have Psalm 77 open. I'll be referring back to the text, hopefully fairly regularly. And if you find it helpful, you've got the headings on the pink notice sheet, and there's some page numbers on there for the text. But let's get straight into the psalm, and let's see, first of all, why is confidence needed? Why do we need to have confidence at all? And why do we need to have someone or something to have confidence in? Well, it's because struggling is a reality. As I say, we live life in a fallen world. We live in a creation that is tainted by the effects of sin and by the fall. And so struggling is a reality for all of us. We come here, and this is written by Asaph. He's one of the chief musicians in the temple in Israel. And yet verses 1 to 9 illustrate that Asaph is in an utterly bleak position. I don't know if I could ever imagine being in such a 
dark state is what Asaph is. And yet here we see the reality of a life lived in a constant, well, perhaps not constant, but in an ongoing state of struggle. Look at verse 1. Asaph says, I cried out to God for help. I cried out to God to hear me. When I was in distress, I sought the Lord. At night I stretched out on tearing hands, and my soul refused to be comforted. What a bleak place to be in. Here's someone who was involved in the life and the ministry of the temple. He was one of the chief musicians. He led the people in worship. And yet this shows us that Asaph is in a time of ongoing real struggle. One who was so involved in the life of the temple, and yet he finds himself here in an utterly bleak place. Verse 4 shows us that Asaph's struggle was not only emotional, but it was physical. It had a physical effect. Verse 4 says, you kept my eyes from closing. I was too troubled to speak. I thought about the former days, the years of long ago. I remembered my songs in the night. My heart mused and my spirit inquired. It seems that for Asaph, the most basic aspects of human life, sleeping, speaking, are now impossible. His struggle is taking a physical toll on him and just getting through the day-to-day basics of living is almost too much for him. It's a terrible place that he finds himself in. He finds himself in a real state of despair here in Psalm 77. And then verses 5 and 6. I thought about the former days, the years of long ago. I remembered my songs in the night. My heart mused and my spirit inquired. See, you would think that by remembering how things used to be that that might make it better for him, but actually it has the opposite effect. It makes it worse. He remembers the song of praise that he used to sing in the temple and how as he sang that song of praise, he would rejoice in the Lord. And yet we read here that my heart mused and my spirit inquired. Just remembering what things used to be like in his life didn't make it any better. The pain still went on. The struggle was still real for him. And his heart sinks further and further into the depths of despair. And so Asaph, in the opening six verses of Psalm 77, is in a real difficult place. He's experiencing a time of ongoing daily struggle. And the distress is real. Now at this point it would be tempting for us to play the part of Job's comforter. If you don't know the story, Job was a man who was righteous in the sight of the Lord. And in Job chapter 4, we read of how one of his friends called Eliphaz was convinced that Job must have sinned. On hearing of Job's struggles and of his difficulties in life, Eliphaz's conclusion was, what have you done wrong, Job? How have you offended God so much that God has smitten you into this state of despair and destruction in life. And yet Job hadn't sinned against God. And so there's a lesson here for us in the life of Asaph as well, that Asaph, there's no evidence that he had sinned against God from the psalm either. No doubt he had sinned as we all do because he was a man, but there's no evidence that this despair and despair that he is in is in any way linked to a particular sin. And there's a lesson here for us as believers, isn't there? We're often very quick to ascribe the reasons for someone's suffering. We look at someone else and think, well, if you hadn't done this, you wouldn't be in that position. But actually here for Asaph, there's absolutely no evidence to suggest that he had done anything in particular that caused this time of suffering. In fact, on the contrary, Asaph, on the face of it, is doing all the right things. He's doing what we would expect 
someone who would be seeking God to be doing. Look in verse 1 again. I cried out to God for help. I cried out to God to hear me. When I was in distress, I sought the Lord. Isn't that what you would advise Asaph to do if you were his friend? If you were Asaph's friend, he came to you and he said, I'm really struggling. I'm in this state where I can't sleep. I can't speak at all. I can't put any sort of words to my despair and distress. He would advise Asaph to go and to seek the Lord, to cry out to God for help. And yet Asaph is doing this, and it seems that it hasn't changed anything for him. His position is still the same. His position remains that he is still in the depths of despair. Now, there's a challenge here for me, certainly, and I hope there is for us as believers. Whenever we come into this state of difficulty and struggle, how do we respond? Would we stop at the first three words of those phrases in verse 1 and say, I cried out? Or would we go a little bit further along with Asaph and we could say, I cried out to God? You may think there's not much of a difference there, but there's a huge difference in those two statements. I cried out and I cried out to God. For by crying out to God, that's a huge statement of faith. Even in the depths of despair, in the depths of his ongoing struggle, Asaph still implicitly declares by crying out to God that he believes that God is able and God is willing to act on his behalf in the middle of his crisis point in life. If we just cry out, that is a basic human instinct. Aoife came out of the womb crying. That was her basic human instinct to coming into the world. But Asaph goes a step further and he cries out to God. Asaph is here what we call lamenting. He's bringing his needs and his concerns and his struggles, not just to himself and not just wallowing in self-pity and despair, but he brings them to the one that he knows and believes is able to act and believes is willing to act, more importantly, on his behalf in the midst of his struggle. Mark Vrogop, Vrogop, I don't know how to pronounce that, is an American pastor, and he's written widely on this subject of lament. And just a couple of years ago, I found his work extremely helpful in my personal life. And he defines lament as the honest cry of a hurting heart, wrestling with the paradox of pain and the promise of God's goodness. See, we live in the fallen world, don't we? And we all experience that struggle. And yet we know and we believe that God is inherently good. And this is where lament comes in. For rather than just crying and wallowing, we bring it to the God who is good. We cry out to God whenever we face a time of struggle. The darkest point in the psalm then comes in verses 7 to 9. Look with me at verse 7 to 9. Will the Lord reject forever? Will he never show his favor again? Has his unfailing love vanished forever? Has his promise failed for all time? Has God forgotten to be merciful? Has he in anger withheld his compassion? I don't know about you, but I find reading passages like this in the Psalms deeply uncomfortable. I find them extremely uncomfortable because I know that if someone walked in here on a Thursday evening to our prayer meeting and started to pray using the language of Psalm 77, verse 7 to 9, I would feel extremely uneasy about it. And yet this is what we have right here in the Bible as an example of how to pray whenever life is difficult. Asaph is at his darkest point. 
He's cried out to God. Nothing has changed. And he wonders, has God forgotten me? Has God forgotten his unfailing love? And I find this so uncomfortable because this section of the psalm cuts right to the very heart of who God is. You might remember in Exodus 34, we read that off-quoted description of who God is and what he is like. And it says that the Lord is a Lord who is slow to anger, a compassionate God, rich in love and abounding in mercy. And throughout the Old Testament, that comes up again and again and again. And yet Asaph here, who would have known all of this, who would have sung that in the temple so often, Asaph finds himself saying, will the Lord reject forever? Will he never show his favor again? Has his unfailing love vanished forever? Has God forgotten to be merciful? Has he in anger withheld his compassion? See, essentially Asaph is asking the question here, is God there? Or even, has God forgotten me? Or worse than both of those things, actually, is God there, but is God no longer acting in accordance with his character? Is God now acting in such a way that if I cry out to him, he simply won't respond? Does God not care about my struggle and my suffering? And while I find these verses deeply uncomfortable to read because they cut right to the very heart of who God is, I find them extremely comforting at the same time on a human level. Because I know in my heart of hearts that I've often asked very similar questions. Not in the language of Asaph, not putting it in such a refined way as what he has here, putting them in a much more deep and much more rugged way in my own heart of hearts. I know there have been times in my life when I have felt this and questioned this about God. And I wonder, are you perhaps even there this evening? Perhaps you're here tonight and you really didn't want to come to church because you feel exactly how Asaph does here in Psalm 77, verse 7 to 9. If you feel that way this evening, take comfort in the fact that someone else has been there with you. I've been there with you, but more importantly, there's a biblical pattern here of someone who has been there with you. It's not unbiblical to feel pain. It's not unbiblical to know the suffering and the struggle, a daily struggle of having to go through life wondering, is God really on my side? We have biblical example here for that kind of prayer. Now it would have been sad, wouldn't it, had the psalmist ended here because we have a bleak picture in the first nine verses. The first nine verses are not pretty reading. And as I say, I find them incredibly uncomfortable and I find them incredibly disturbing and difficult to read. And yet the reality for some of us in the room, perhaps even this evening, is this is our reality today. I don't know all of you. I don't know all of your situations in life. And yet I could put a pretty good bet on it. There is possibly someone in the room tonight who will have felt exactly what Asaph does here. Because daily struggle is a reality of life in a fallen world. And that is why we need to have confidence from somewhere. Because just expecting to get through life by ourselves will not cut it. It will not work. Because we will encounter difficulties that drive us to the place that Asaph is in, in verses 1 to 9. So let's then look at gaining confidence. Let's move on to verses 10 to 14. And if you're thinking this is going to be a very long sermon, point one is the longest of my three points. You'll be pleased to hear. So gaining confidence then in verse 10 to 14, and this is the method 
We're going to say gaining confidence, first of all, the method, and then we're going to look at the specifics of how Asaph gains confidence. So first of all, the method, verse 10 to 14. Then I thought, to this I will appeal, the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your miracles of long ago. I will meditate on all your works and consider all your mighty deeds. Your ways, O God, are holy. What God is so great as our God? You're the God who performs miracles. You display your power among the peoples. So often in the Bible, it's little words or little phrases that make a huge difference. And Psalm 77 is a prime example of this. The change in the psalm comes whenever Asaph says, then I thought. And from this point onwards, the whole mood has has switched. Everything has changed in the middle of three words. Verse 10 is really the crux point of the psalm. This little phrase moves Asaph from looking inward and crying out to God and wondering, why is God not there? To then looking back at objective truth about God that he knows from history to be true. And that is where his confidence rests. I wasn't sure really when I was preparing about this phrase, I will appeal to the ears of the right hand of the Most High. But by putting together a few jigsaw pieces of the Bible and what the Bible has to say about the right hand of the Most High, I think we can get a pretty good idea of what Asaph is appealing to here. The right hand is a place of blessing throughout the Old Testament. The right hand is a symbol of blessing to be passed down the generations. If you remember, Genesis 48 tells us of an episode where Jacob brings his two sons to him to be blessed and to pass on the blessing down the generations. And Ephraim shouldn't have had the blessing. He was the younger son. Rightfully, it belonged to Manasseh. But Jacob put his hands the other way around and made sure the right hand went on to Ephraim so that Ephraim would receive the blessing of Jacob. And so the blessing was passed down the generations through the right hand. So the right hand is a place of blessing. But the right hand is also a place of strength and authority. Exodus chapter 15, we read that Moses and the children of Israel declaring together, Your right hand, Lord, was majestic in power. Your right hand, Lord, shattered the enemy. The right hand is a place of blessing, but it's also a place of strength and authority. But the right hand is a place of salvation. The psalmist David in Psalm 17 identifies the Lord as the one who saves by your right hand. And so by putting together a few different parts of the Old Testament, we build a picture here of what it is that Asaph is referring to. Asaph is referring to the Lord's, he's appealing to the years of the right hand of the Most High. He's appealing back to God's works of blessing, of strength, and of salvation ultimately for his people. That's, this is where Asaph is going to find his confidence. His method is looking back. Now, we don't like to look back often, do we? We often hear of people being bemoaned because they look back at the olden days and things like that. But looking back is important, and looking back actually is very biblical. We judge people on their record. I play cricket each week, and we have a batsman who comes in at about number four in the innings. And we know 99% of the time, because of his record in the past, we know that if he comes in the bat and we're in a bit of trouble, 99% of the time, he's going to pull us out of that trouble because he's got a record of proven performance. He's played for many, many years. 
He's played at a much higher level than he's playing now. And so we know, we have confidence in him, looking back on his record, that he will perform on any given Saturday until it all goes wrong, of course. But thankfully, God isn't like that. God is someone who we can look back at his record and we can truly say we can have confidence in this God because his record is sure and steadfast and good. We can look back and say, truly, this God is worth trusting and this God is worth having confidence in. The method is looking back. We see this method displayed in verses 11 and 12 as Asaph repeats the verbs over and over again. I will remember in verse 11. I will remember again in verse 11. Verse 12, I will meditate. And then it says, I will meditate on all your works and consider all your mighty deeds. Looking back is Asaph's method. He remembers, he considers, and he meditates on God's mighty acts and his wondrous deeds. And look at the result here in verse 13. Verse 13 says, Your ways, O God, are holy. What God is so great as our God? Now, if you follow the question marks in Psalm 77, you will notice the contrast here in the question in verse 13 and the six questions that came in verse 7 to 9. Verse 7 to 9, the psalmist is saying, Will the Lord reject forever? Will he never show his favor again? Has his unfailing love vanished forever? Has his promise failed for all time? Has God forgotten to be merciful? Has he in anger withheld his compassion And then verse 13, what God is so great as our God? What a change. What a change it is because you could hardly imagine this has been written by the same man in the same psalm. The the contrast is incredible to look at and to see. And so Asaph, by remembering the works of God in blessing, in strength, in authority, in salvation, by meditating and considering those works, He gets to this point where he's saying, what God is so great as our God? Rather than questioning, Asaph is now praising. He's turned his questions to praise and he's seen the goodness and the mighty works of God. Verse 10 to 14 show us the general method of um, gaining confidence whenever we need it in a time of struggle. But verses 15 to 20 then reveal the specifics and build on verse 10 to 14. Verse 15 says, With your mighty arm you redeemed your people, the descendants of Jacob and Joseph, Selah. The waters saw you, O God. The waters saw you and writhed. The very depths were convulsed. The clouds poured down water. The skies resounded with thunder. Your arrows flashed back and forth. Your thunder was heard in the whirlwind. Your lightning lit up the world. The earth trembled and quaked. Your path led through the sea, your way through the mighty waters, though your footprints were not seen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. Here we have the specifics of gaining confidence for our time of struggle. And verse 15 really, I think, is the high point of the entire psalm. Verse 10 is the crux of where things start to change. But then verse 15 reveals the most wonderful work of God for the Old Testament people of Israel. With your mighty arm, you redeemed your people, the descendants of Jacob and Joseph. Asaph's remembrance, his consideration of God's wonderful works, isn't just in general terms. It's drawn back to a particular act in God's plan of redemptive history. And if you know your Old Testament history, you will know 
This is the Exodus, that wonderful act of God in bringing his people out of Israel or out of Egypt from bondage under slavery. And he draws them out and he leads them then through the wilderness years till they reach the promised land. Asaph's remembrance of God is drawn back to the central act of redemption. And all of a sudden then things begin to change for him as redemption becomes his theme again in the psalm. See, for Asaph, he needs to anchor his heart to something. He's still hurting. The psalm hasn't changed his heart yet. But Asaph needs to anchor to something. And so Asaph sees God's wonderful works and his mighty deeds, and he anchors that in redemption. He looks back to a particular act in history as God delivered his people from slavery. The exodus for Asaph becomes an anchor for a weary soul. It becomes the place where his anxious heart and struggling heart can rest in the knowledge that God has redeemed his people out of slavery. For the Christian, of course, our exodus moment is at the cross. This is the point that this sermon has been coming to. I've been looking forward to getting here because we have a much better moment of redemption in history to look back on. We look back to a real man who lived a real life on earth, was an innocent man as the son of God, and he willingly offered up his life on an old rugged cross outside Jerusalem to redeem his people, us, from our sins. And that is our moment that we can look back to for confidence when we are struggling. Whenever the struggle becomes a reality like it did for Asaph, whenever we need a method, we look back in history at God's wonderful works, but not just in specific terms. We look back to a particular day in history about 2,000 years ago when God himself was nailed to a rugged cross. And that is our confidence. That is what we can look back on. That is what we can cling to in the week to come if struggles come. In your life now, perhaps even tonight, that is what you can cling to as your hope and your confidence if you're struggling this evening. You can have confidence in the fact that Jesus Christ loved you enough to give his life for you on a cross. Though he was totally undeserving of any punishment. And he became sin for us. And that is our confidence whenever we are struggling. We look back to a place where God's love was fully displayed. We look back to a place where God's compassion was fully displayed. And so the questions that the psalmist asks in verses 7 to 9, if you're asking them tonight, you can look back and see the evidence that God has not done all of these things because his sacrifice of his son stands. And there's a real man in heaven this evening who intercedes on our behalf. And that is the joy of knowing Christ. That is the real joy of knowing Christ, that whenever struggles come, we can cling to him and to his cross and his finished work on the cross. Often together we use the words of the Heidelberg Catechism in our worship together on Sunday mornings particularly. And question one says this, what is your only hope in life and death? Notice only hope in life and death. And the answer is that I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He is fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood, and he has set me free from all the power of the devil. That alone is our sufficient hope 
and our sufficient confidence for when struggles come into our life, that we belong in body and soul, both in life and death, to our faithful Savior, that he has paid for our sins with his precious blood. That is my confidence. And if you're not a believer here tonight, I would ask you again that question I asked you at the beginning of the evening, because you can't look back in history to a redemption point for you. You can't look back to a day whenever you came to the cross and acknowledged your need of the Lord Jesus and his redemption in your own life. But the good news is that you can. This evening that offer stands open to you. We live in what we call the day of grace whenever you still have the opportunity to come to the cross, to find this confidence that you can rest in so that you can say with us that he has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from all the power of the devil. You have that opportunity tonight, and I would ask you, would you not do that this evening? Do you not want this confidence that so many of us in this room enjoy, so that whenever a struggle or a difficulty comes into your life, you have this hope in life and in death? Unlike many other psalms of lament, this psalm doesn't end with a big crescendo of praise. Often the psalms of lament will end with about two verses of resounding praise where it's obvious that everything has changed for the psalmist. They all start off in a similar way with crying out to God. There's a crux point in the middle and by the end we're back up on the mountaintop. But you might have noticed that this one doesn't end like that. And that's part of the reason why I chose to preach on it. Because I think it would be a mistake to get drawn into thinking that we will always get back up onto the mountaintop of life and we'll always be back up singing eventually and thinking that life is great. There are many people in the world this evening for whom struggle is an ongoing reality, where the pain doesn't actually get lifted away, where perhaps physical pain is just a daily part of your life. It's a daily struggle. Perhaps it's worries over your finances that just never seem to go and you seem to be getting by from one day to the next. Perhaps it's something that other people think is silly to be concerned about. And yet it's something that plagues your mind day by day by day. Well, this verse is really encouraging, I think, to know that God still leads his people. Even when there is ongoing struggle that doesn't seem to lift It doesn't seem to get better with looking back to that point in time whenever you know that Christ paid the debt for your sin. There can still be people out there who find it incredibly difficult just to get through the day to day. And that's why I find this end point of Psalm 77, anticlimactic though it may seem, very encouraging. Let's notice two things very quickly in closing about the way this ends. Psalm 77 verse 20 says, You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. First thing is what I just said, the struggle may not actually leave us. The struggle may keep on going day by day. And yet you still have this hope to cling to. That Jesus loves me, for the Bible tells me so. It's as simple as that. And that is our hope to cling on to when the struggle doesn't lift. When the struggle keeps on going. And when day by day, life is difficult. Secondly, then, God has appointed very ordinary looking people and things to guide us through the rest of our lives. We read here of Moses and Aaron. And in the Old Testament, they were the two men appointed by God to bring his people from Egypt through the Exodus and then into the promised land. 
In the New Testament, we have men appointed by God over us, under shepherds and elders in the church. We have the means of grace given by God, a church family that we come to each week, that we meet up with during the week to encourage and to bless one another as we go on through life. Commenting on verse 20, F.B. Mayer said, This mighty God has the tender heart of a shepherd. He leads his people like a flock, not overdriving, but carrying the lambs in his bosom and gently leading those that are young. Mightier than the mightiest as displayed in verses 16 to 19, but meeker than the meekest. What a wonderful God we have. A God who in verse 16 to 19 we read of his power over nature and over everything in the world that he has created. And yet then in verse 20 we can see that he has given us just what we need to get through the daily life that we have to live here on earth. How gracious he is to us. And how much confidence we can enjoy and how much confidence we can have in such a God. And one who is powerful and yet in one who draws close as the good shepherd that gave his life for the sheep. I started by asking us, where is our confidence when life gets tough? And I hope that we can see here that our only confidence, the only thing we can truly trust in just to get through the struggles of life is the Lord Jesus Christ and his act of redemption on our behalf at the place called Calvary. We gain confidence because it is needed. We gain confidence because struggle is a reality. We gain confidence through looking back, seeing God's record displayed in history. But more importantly, more specifically, we look back and we see God's love and his power displayed at the place called Calvary as he gave his son as a sacrifice for us. We're going to sing now to close and we're going to sing to encourage ourselves and to sing to encourage one another. Sing the words, firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord. And we'll stand when the music.